how am I going to get enough clean water for me and my family to survive? And how am I going to make this water that I have stretch? And the anxiety that comes with that, the impact that has, it's something that is, is so sort of like difficult for us all to understand until we've given our, ourselves a chance to experience it. And and you maybe have that chance on the farm with your well. And and some people have had that chance accidentally when their water service has gotten turned off without them expecting it for a day or two. But yeah, I think that would be my challenge to people listening today who who really care about this and who are like, whoa, like, I want to do something about that, or I want to learn more about that. Like start in your own house, because once you have that connection, it only takes one day, 24 hours. But once you have that connection, you're going to be like super powered. Welcome to Business with Purpose. I'm your host, Molly Stillman. And this show is all about bringing you the stories behind the brands, the companies and the small businesses that are changing the world. Each week, I get to sit down with an incredible entrepreneur, business leader, community activist, nonprofit director, CEO, or just an amazing person who is trying to make a positive impact, not only through their personal life, but also with their career. My goal is to show you, the listener, that no matter what you do, no matter where you are, you can make a difference. My guest this week is George McGraw. He is the founder and CEO of Dig Deep the only water sanitation and hygiene organization solely focused on the United States. He is the leading expert on water and sanitation in the USA and around the world. In 2019, he co-authored Closing the Water Access Gap in the United States Report, an explosive study that revealed over 2.2 million Americans currently live without a tap or toilet at home, with race being the number one predictor of water insecurity. In 2002, he was the lead author on Draining, the Economic Impact of America's Hidden Water Crisis, which calculated this water access gap costs the U.S. economy $8.58 billion each year. It remains unsolved. The report also found that there is hope. For every $1 invested in closing the water gap, the U.S. economy sees a nearly five times return. He is an absolute powerhouse. And I loved this conversation. I think George is just a phenomenal human being. And having the opportunity to sit down and ask him really honest questions about this. And the reality is, is even going into this conversation and preparing for this episode, I had no idea the human rights water crisis that our country is facing. So often we think about water access or access to clean water and sanitation as being an issue that happens, quote unquote, over there. But the reality is, is it is happening right here on U.S. soil. And I love that George is really working with his organization to make sure that that doesn't stay the same forever. You are going to be incredibly inspired, encouraged, and challenged by this conversation. So without further ado, on to my chat with George McGraw. George, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Molly. It's a beautiful day. It is a beautiful day. And I just have to like, I feel like we have to just mark this as a very um, interesting turning point. Uh, When we are recording this, like right before we went to record, Zoom went down. And so for the listeners (laughs) that might not know, I talk with my guests through Zoom, even though I record on a different platform. And for, I've, it's like this, <laughs> the Zoom went down, we couldn't get on and we were like, wait, is it you? Is it me? And then we went to Twitter because that's where all, if anything goes down, people on Twitter are going to talk about it. And it just felt like very, is the pandemic over because Zoom is down? And then they're just like, you know what? We're just going to shut it all <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you're right. If, if it's happening, people are talking about it on Twitter. I think if it's not happening, people are still talking about it on Twitter typically. But uh, yeah, in a post-pandemic world, Zoom going down is like, it's like a run on the bank. Like, it's a big deal. Well, like, how are we going to make it? I know. It's somebody said, um, yeah. somebody tweeted, uh, Zoom being down, I'm like simultaneously terrified and feel very liberated. <laughs> yeah, truly. <laughs> oh my well, gosh. I did not feel liberated because I was so excited for this conversation. I know. Today. Same. So it was I was very like, very annoying for me. Oh, come on. Um, so anyway, we did it. Um, here we are. And that just means that this is going to be really amazing. So George, let's go ahead and just dive, no pun intended, right into our Hey-o. conversation and give us the George 101. So tell us who you are, what you do and how you got to where you are today. Yeah. My name is George McGraw. I use he him pronouns. I am the founder and CEO at digdeep.org. Um, we're a nonprofit based in Los Angeles, um, but we're not a charity. We're a human rights organization, and we work to get 
hot and cold running water and working flush toilets to every person in the US, which why do we need that? Well, actually, there's 2.2 million Americans right here who wake up every day and don't have running water at home and have to leave home to get it. And they shower at truck stops or at school and they buy bottled water if they're lucky or they might walk out of their house with a bucket and pull it out of a mine shaft or a pond or a spring. And this is the richest democracy on earth. And that's crazy and a tremendous injustice, which is why you know we're working as a human rights organization to make sure every American has it. And the shortest answer to your question of how I got here <laughs> is like, I've always been a little bit of a water nerd. Like I was, um, I was like the kid where your mom would take you to the zoo and uh, she'd like go buy the tickets and she'd turn around and I, I would have taken off all my clothes and be playing in like the fountain. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I don't, I don't know. I think uh, life has a funny path. I, I thought if you wanted to help people get access to water, you had to work in other countries. So my career uh, and Dig Deep's work, in fact, started in sub-Saharan Africa. And it wasn't until years later that we, you know, discovered this problem in our own backyards. And now we're the only organization working to solve it. And and uh, here I am working in my own country. And that feels really great. Mm. Uh, I love that because I also was the kid who was like, often found myself like <laughs> playing in a fountain <laughs> where I'd see a giant fountain somewhere in public. <laughs> and I'd be like, I should just swim in that. Um, what is it about big fountains? I mean, you know, there's yeah. something exciting. Yeah. Water's moving. It's like a pool. Yeah, yeah. it's really, it's I just, it. it just seems really, really, uh, it, it's like a, like the sirens in the Odyssey, like just calls you. <laughs> yeah, it's and calling just, to you. You yeah, can't, yeah. you can't resist it. Okay. So I, what you're doing with Dig Deep is so amazing. And the more that I began to research your organization and what you do, uh, the more I r- really wanted to talk with you because um, this, you're right, this is an issue access to clean water, access to, um, you know, running water is something that we historically in this country, especially in the last, you know, 30 years would have associated with, oh, that is a problem that happens, quote, over there. And um, I watched an interview or maybe it was even a talk you gave quite a few years ago at this point where you'd been doing work in uh, Sudan. And so tell I, I'd love for you to tell this story. Basically, you were doing work in Sudan and you got a call from someone who lives right here in the United States in New Mexico. And, and she said to you, wait, I <laughs> help us. <laughs> we're right in your, you know, quote unquote backyard. And uh we don't have access to clean water. And that began to lead you on a path of, you know what, nobody's taking care of this problem right here in the United States. Um, so can you kind of tell that story and how that all transpired? Yeah, well, I mean, you really you really covered it. I was working at the time in South Sudan and in Cameroon. And, and this really enterprising woman named Karen had been working on like a Habitat for Humanity style project on the Navajo Nation, which is the country's largest reservation. It's in the Southwest. It covers parts of New Mexico and Arizona and Utah. And if it were a state, it would be the 10th biggest. So this is a big area with a lot of people living in it. And she was building houses and the houses wouldn't have bathrooms or kitchens. And she turned to her Navajo colleagues and was like, why why are we building a house if there's no kitchen, no bathroom? And people were like, well, there's no running water in this area and there's not going to be. So why would we build those things? And, you know, she took whatever sort of feelings came up for her, I think probably a little rage, a little frustration, some disbelief, the same kind of mix of feelings most people get when they hear about this problem for the first time. And uh, she got on the internet and she made a list of water organizations. She started calling them. And I think she probably got down to the end of the list um, to us, which is such a small organization at the time. And she said, you know, I have a little bit of money to, to donate, but I want you to spend it in the US. And I was like, lady, you gotta be crazy. Like nobody here needs that. This is the United States of America. And she was like, you know, the fact that you don't know this is happening in your own country. and You're supposed to be an expert on this issue. Like, that hurts. Like, that's tough. What are you going to do about this? And that challenge from her and really the work she did to connect me to her, to her colleagues and her contacts that she was working with on Navajo, those first few meetings where I, I met some incredible, uh, mostly Navajo women working on water issues who now work with me or at Dig Deep. They really set the groundwork for what would become the Navajo Water Project, which this year will turn on running water in 300 homes in a single year. Wow. Wow. I'm curious. Um, and I, I tend to be the type of person who just asks questions, even if I feel like it might be a stupid question, because I'm like, you know what, if I have the question, maybe there's somebody Didn't else. Did you hear it? There's the no such thing. Yeah, there's no such thing as a stupid question. Exactly. Thank you, George. Um, so basically, 
I will be honest, as I started researching for this episode, I was learning things that I did not know. Um, And I feel like I am somebody who is pretty in tune with a lot of issues that are going on today. I, you know, regularly interview a lot of people in sort of, you know, the nonprofit space and impact, you know, business space. And, you know, I do not by any means claim to be an expert in any way, shape or form. But if you had asked me, you know, a month ago, what do you know about water issues in the United States? My answer probably would have been Flint, Michigan. Like that's I mean, that's pretty much what I think my answer would have been. So I and I guess I don't I'm, I'm struggling with actually how to word this question, but I guess more like as you were entering into this. Is that kind of where you were as well? Is that what you find is very common is people are like, oh, I, oh my Flint, gosh, Michigan, yeah. I've heard of that. And even then, like, I don't <clears> think <throat> I can really educationally educate. What's the word I'm looking for? Oh, my gosh. my The synapses are not firing in my brain today. You I and Zoom. Yeah. Yes, you're both down. Me, me and Zoom are both <laughs> down, George. Oh, my goodness. Ugh. No, you're okay. killing it. You're killing it. <laughs> I know. I'm kidding. <laughs> anyway. Um, yes, I, I just think that um, I could not in an educated way speak on what happened in Flint, Michigan, what the issues are still that today. You know what I mean? Like, mm. I just kind of generally understand the people of Flint, Michigan haven't had clean water. And that's like it. Yeah. But well, it's let me, so much let me lay that. that all out for you. I don't think that like, actually, the trick is there are such things as stupid questions. Like, no, you know, I'm not supposed to say that, but that's not one of them. So <laughs> you're good. <laughs> Thank you, George. I appreciate. Um, listen, there, I want to say so much about this. The first thing I'll say is I didn't know either. And when I founded Dig Deep, uh, you know, and we started working in the U.S., we became the only organization working on this issue. That's how I'm not well known. Right. Now there are many other organizations who maybe were working on water abroad, like Water for People, who's done this work in, in Latin America and Southeast Asia that are coming back to work in the U.S. Or other organizations or community groups that are popping up, like We the People of Detroit, um, you know, groups in Puerto Rico and other places that are, are starting to come together to solve this problem. But yeah, I mean, when we started working on the Navajo Nation, I remember calling my friends in federal government and saying, hey, I'm seeing some crazy stuff out here. Maybe a third of homes in this area don't have running water. People are waking up every day and hauling their water home. And it doesn't really seem like, you know, the tribe is getting the support it needs to solve the problem. And by the way, like how many other people are facing this in the US? Like, do we have some data? And what I heard back from from my friends in government was like, no, we, we stopped collecting that data in the 90s. Mm. In fact, what little data we had left in 2016, we were still asking people, in the census, do you have a toilet, a flush toilet in your house? And we, we got rid of that question in 2016. So wow. you know, it's not it's not just that it's not just that like you know we have bad data. It's like we're 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 not we're not even keeping track of this problem at a time when it's probably growing. Wow. Um, but to your point about Flint, I think like if no one knew for a long time, the silver lining of things like Flint, like this recent crisis in Jackson, Mississippi, this sort of the issues around COVID, because you can imagine, you know, COVID really hit communities without running water really hard. You couldn't wash right. your hands. You were having to leave your house all the time to buy water or haul it. Those things helped kind of raise the public profile of this. And more people are paying attention than ever before. I think like Bella Hadid tweeted about our work today. And like, you know, I saw a donation coming from Bonnie Raitt and like all sorts of people wow. are, are sort of waking up to this and getting involved. And that's really cool. But I guess the last thing I'll say is to, to sort of break that last part of your question down, like what, what the heck happened in right. Flint and like what, what is going on? So, so at Dig Deep, we work on that problem we call the water gap, where we have 2.2 million Americans who don't have a tap or a toilet at home. They wake up every day, no running water at all. There are probably 40 to 50 million more Americans, millions of them right here in California where I live, who wake up every day and they have a tap that maybe works, maybe doesn't, or maybe the water that comes out isn't safe to drink. That's what's happening in Flint, where, you know, this change in the water system leached lead into the system and started poisoning kids. That's what happened in Jackson, Mississippi, when the system started to fall offline and the water was too contaminated and people woke up one day and they just couldn't use their sinks anymore. So those 2.2 million Americans, they have nothing. There's tens of millions more Americans who maybe have a tap or a toilet at home that they just can't use. And, you know, like you said, it's there's no reason that that should continue. Right, right. Man, okay. Well, I really, one, I really appreciate the way that you speak about this in with such um, humanity and heart because um, it can be 
again, I think it can it can be an issue that so many of us get overwhelmed by very quickly. And then we just kind mm. of shut down and then we're like, don't, this feels uncomfortable um, because we live in the greatest country in the world. And uh, you know what I mean? And it can just feel challenging and it can feel uncomfortable. Mm. Um, but I love the way that you speak again, they, you speak about this with such humanity and then and such uh, heart in a way that you're like, OK, here's a reality. What do we do next? Um, because this, again, kind of feels like a big issue. And once you are aware of and once you uh, I'm going to kind of paint in it, not an analogy, but com- comparatively, um, in a lot of ways, this for me in this moment <laughs> feels kind of the way I felt, I guess, 12 years ago when I went to an event where I watched a documentary about human trafficking. And for years, I had had this picture in my mind and this understanding that human trafficking was an issue that happened over there, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And it was an issue that was happening in other parts of the world. And man, that's really sad. And we should do something about that. But I just never in my mind thought like, oh, it probably, you know, it doesn't happen here in the United States. And then there I was 12 years ago and I learned about human trafficking and I learned that it was happening not only in the United States, but that North Carolina ranked in the top 10 consistently for the top states in the entire country for human trafficking. And that's partly because we have three, well, really even more than that, but three major interstates that go through. We have I-40, which starts in North Carolina and then obviously ends in California, right? Ends in California? Yeah. A lot of our work is on I-40 in uh, New Mexico and Arizona. So, you know, you've got I-40 here. Um, You've got I-85, which goes, you know, Mm -hmm. through through Georgia all the way up into Virginia. And then we've got I-95. And then we actually even have an area where 40 and 95 meet and 40 and 85 are together for a little while. I mean, it's so you and then you have large military bases, ports, all these kinds of things. So it just becomes this hub for human trafficking. And so, you know, 12 years ago, when I learned about this, I got really overwhelmed. And then I immediately said, okay, I need to do something about it. And so I immediately got involved in local anti-human trafficking work. And that kind of started me down a journey that eventually like led me to where I am now. And so for me, kind of learning really in the last month or so, just preparing for this episode and beginning to open my eyes to Oh my goodness, how is this? Because I mean, I've been to Kenya and helped with wells in rural villages in Kenya. And I remember seeing, I mean, firsthand, I was there when they turned the tap on a brand new well in a tiny, tiny rural village in the mountains of Kenya and how life changing that was for this group of people. But then to realize that there are people here in my country that I love so much that are struggling with the exact same things. And so now I'm all of a sudden like, oh my gosh, now we got to do this. You know what I mean? It, it feels overwhelming. So I, I ramble and I say all of that to say that I'm sure that there are going to be people listening to this that are going to feel the exact same way and feel overwhelmed. <clears throat> and so for you, somebody who does this work, you're involved in this work on a regular basis. What do you say to people who are kind of like me and kind of begin to wake up to this issue? And in a practical sense, what are the things that we can be doing to move forward to make sure that in our lifetime, that this is no longer an issue here? Amen. Oh my gosh, so much to unpack there. I think first, the first thing I'll say to you, Molly, and to whoever else feels that way is, ah, don't worry. This is not the biggest problem that we've ever solved as a country. Yeah. Like this, <laughs> yeah. is, this is pretty small potatoes. Now, that being said, it's not small potatoes to the people that are experiencing it every day. Right. And one of the reasons the issue can feel so uncomfortable is because the forces that created it are some of the most uncomfortable forces in our sort of our national history. You know, the way we built water and wastewater infrastructure starting more than 100 years ago with the New Deal, when we made these massive investments in the country, it was unevenly distributed. And we didn't build the same systems in non-white communities that we did in white communities. Sometimes we bypassed them completely. Places like reservations and agricultural workers and rural communities. And then you have the added impact of communities that once had great access to water, places like Appalachia, you know, where you have the, the sort of demise of the coal industry and a shifting economy and no one to take care of the systems and then they fall offline. You know, yeah. they woke up one day, 10, 20, 50 years ago, um, to a boil water advisory, just like the people in Jackson, Mississippi did a few weeks ago. And they thought, eh, that'll get solved. Someone will fix that. And 
today they have no running water at all. Right. So it's not something we can take for granted. And it is, and it is, and it is a big deal for people that are experiencing it. And I think it's a big em- embarrassment as a country. And it is tied to like our legacy of systemic racism and these things that we really need to confront as a country. But we are a brilliant multicultural powerhouse of a country that has brought, right. you know, clean running water to more than 99% of people across right. this gigantic geographically, geologically, ethnically diverse space that we call the United States of America very successfully. And so closing the gap for these 2.2 million that are left, if we really focus on it, give it the time, the attention, set the goal, put the money into it. Like it's not impossible. It's completely possible. The fact that a teeny little organization like mine, you know, with 80 people, 50% of whom, by the way, have grown up without running water ourselves. Mm. You know, the fact that we can do this ourselves in some of the most remote, difficult to reach communities in this country with, you know, the few resources we're able to scrape up from incredible individual donors who might give us 50 or a hundred bucks to do this work. Like the fact that we can do it means that it can be really accomplished, especially if we can get the federal government and some big funders and and other big nonprofits to join us in that work. Mm, Man, that'll preach right there. And I love the way you talk about how, like, if we can do it, 80 of us and 50, you said 50 of whom uh, grew up without running water. Um, so obviously they have a big stake in this as well. Um, you yeah, know, it's, it's personal. Yeah, it's personal. <clears throat> and anytime something is personal, we obviously care about it more. And that's why it is one of those issues that once you wake up to it and you really begin to unpack it and, and, and you start to think about how can I make it personal? Um, if it doesn't directly mm-hmm. affect you, how can I make it personal? And I think about, I mean, you know, I'm a wife and I have young children and I have farm animals And I will tell you, like living on a farm when I am suddenly very aware when it doesn't rain and I'm suddenly very Mm. aware when it's rained too much. Um, And we have I mean, we're on a well. um, And so on this like tiny little example, like if we have too much rain, our water gets muddy. So like I'll turn on my sink and it's like muddy water (laughs) because like even our expensive filtration system can't handle it. And so I, you know, then I think about it. Okay, well, then how can I compare that to a family, you know, living in the Navajo Nation who have animals to care for and crops to grow and all these kinds of things like they are absolutely affected by the same thing. And then wait a second, they don't have a filtration system and they don't have, you know what I mean? Like it's just, it, you start, it starts to mushroom. <laughs> it's really interesting that you use that example because I do think that that's part of the reason that this problem has gone unnoticed for so long and why maybe it seems so difficult for people to solve. One of the great accomplishments uh, in this country, building this water and wastewater infrastructure is that in most cases, it's so efficient and it's so well built that you never see it. Mm-hmm. And it's so reliable. Right. You know, you walk over to your sink in most major cities and you turn it on and you know reliably that hot and cold water, running water are going to come out. For most people in this country, they don't even look at their water bill. Right. They're, not even, they're not even concerned with how expensive it is because it's so cheap, artificially so, I think. But that means that most of us lack a connection to this resource that we have to other causes. Like we've all been touched by cancer, right? Mm-hmm. Like we've all been touched by by grief or loss. Some of us have been touched by other causes. We, we all have a deeper connection, I think, to our like our Wi-Fi signal than we do the running water in our house right. for some reason. Right. Um, and so at Dig Deep, we've been exploring like what would it be like to reestablish that connection? And I think not to get too philosophical about it, but like we work with two groups of people, right? We work with one group of people whose resource is money and they have access to water. And we work with another group of people whose resource is knowledge and connection to water, but they don't have access to it. And so like, how do you get the money from this group to build the connection for the others? And how do you get the knowledge or the connection to the resource from that group to the group that has no relationship to their yeah. water? And one of the ways we do that is called this this thing called the Four Leaders Challenge. You asked like, you know, what should people who are feeling this way do to get involved? I was going to suggest this, like before you give money, before you get involved, before you drive out to a community without running water and see what you can do, the best thing you can do, honestly, is take 24 hours, grab an old milk gallon or grab an algae that holds about a liter um, and fill it up. If you have a liter bottle, fill it up four times throughout the day. And every time you use water in 24 hours, make sure it's water that comes out of that jug and that you only use four liters or about a gallon. If you're going to brush your teeth, if you're going to make some pasta for your kids, if you're going to wash your hands, if you're going to wash your armpits before you go to the meeting, like make sure it comes out of that bottle. And then at 4 p.m. on the day that you're doing this, check in like, ooh, how much water do I have left? And what has this experience been like 
hundreds, maybe probably tens of thousands of people around the country now have done this, including, you know, celebrities and influencers and authors and artists. And everyone's experience is a little bit different with the four leaders challenge. But the one thing that everyone has in common is they say like, wow, I've never planned my day around how much water I have before. Yeah. You know, like, can I go to soccer practice? Can I take this stain off my shirt? Like, can I afford that water? And that is the reality that these 2.2 million Americans wake up with every day. They don't wake up and think like, oof, I have that test today. Or like, I got to get my kid to gymnastics. Or like, they wake up and think, how am I going to get enough clean water for me and my family to survive? And how am I going to make this water that I have stretch? And the anxiety that comes with that, the impact that has, it's something that is, is so sort of like, difficult for us all to understand until we've given our, ourselves a chance to experience it. And and you maybe have that chance on the farm with your well. And and some people have had that chance accidentally when their water service has gotten turned off without them expecting it for a day or two. But yeah, I think that would be my challenge to people listening today who who really care about this and who are like, whoa, like I want to do something about that or I want to learn more about that. Like start in your own house because once you have that connection, it only takes one day, 24 hours, but once you have that connection, you're going to be like super powered. Wow. That is such a good challenge. And man, uh, yeah, that is just as you were describing it. I mean, I'm sitting here. I was like mentally Rolodexing like all the things in my head, like of all the ways that I use water throughout the day, even though like I am aware of it. But then you just. Yeah, it's I'll tell you, we um, because again, since we're on a well and, um, you know, we're just being in a little bit more of a rural area. Before when we first moved here, I remember like maybe I don't even know, uh, like a month after we moved in, we lost power. Well, when we lose power, we also lose water. You lose water. We lose no water. Pump, right? Which, like, if you right. are in the city, you don't because your water is not on a well. And uh, so we lost power and uh, we lost water. And I mean, it was, I don't remember how long we were without it, but it was very sudden. Like we couldn't flush the toilets. We can't take showers. You can't wash hands. Like you can't get water from the fridge, nothing. Um, And so that woke us up to very quickly. We saved up and invested in a generator so that in emergencies to run just basic needs. And um, then Hurricane Ian hit um, about a month and a little, yeah, a little over a month ago at this point. And when Hurricane Ian hit, uh, we ended up losing power for three days, something like that, internet for five. And but thankfully, we had invested, we had saved and we invested in the in the um, the generator. And I will say, like, I was highly aware while we had power, while we had no power, but we were running on a generator so we could only run kind of the essentials. I was every time I went to the bathroom and every time I washed my hands in the sink, I went, Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for this generator. Like, thank you, Lord. Because I was like, what would we have done if three months or three days without water? I would, you know, because they what's the thing they say? Uh, It's like you can go two weeks without food. You can survive a week without food or two, but only a couple days without water. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, it's like as you were just describing that challenge and how do you how do you think about this and, and put yourself in somebody's shoes in a really real and practical sense? I just I felt that on such a deep level. And and you're right. I think that that generally begins to help people feel more connected to this issue. Okay. So yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say you, you, you saw that problem, right. And you have that sort of, you had that ability economically to save that money up and solve that problem for yourself. And I think that that's why Deep's work is so important because when we're working with families who have no access to water, they live on this sort of this economic edge all the time. I remember on one of my very first trips to Navajo, I was on the back of a, a water truck that this local school bus driver named Darlene, like she would drive the school bus in the morning, she'd park it, she'd pick up her own water truck, she'd fill it up, and then she'd retrace her bus route, dropping off water at her students' houses because they didn't have it. Mm. And uh, she did it on her own time. And I rode with her and we pulled up to a house, uh, this woman named Brenda's house, and everyone sort of flooded out really excitedly to fill everything that would hold a, a drop of water, like a, a cup, a can, a mug, a pickle jar, a bucket, whatever. And like we brought it into the house and like every surface of the house is covered in things holding water. And the mom, Brenda, she filled up a, a cooking pot and she brought it to the kitchen and she started making tamales. And I followed her into the kitchen and I said like, oh, this is so great. You're going to make some tamales. Are you going to have some family over? And she said, no, like I, I make these tamales. I put them in this cooler. I walk down the hill and I sell them. 
And that's how I get gas money and spending money and the money that the household needs to run. Hmm. She explained that her husband, who was the primary breadwinner, he works in a factory in Gallup, maybe 50 miles away, and he'd been injured. Something dropped on his foot, smashed his toe. Mm. He came home, couldn't keep it clean because they didn't have running water. It got infected. It got gangrene. And he'd been in a hospital. And she was like, you know, I'm so relieved. He's healed. He's better. And I was like, okay, well, where is he? And she said, oh, no, he got discharged from the hospital 10 days ago. He's been sleeping on the street in Gallup because no water meant no tamales and no tamales meant no gas money and no gas money meant I couldn't go pick him up. And since I haven't picked him up, he hasn't worked in the last 10 days. And so we haven't had that income. And it's like, if you don't have mm. access to water, you don't even have the ability to help yourself because you're facing that like economic stress. You're living on that like razor's edge every yeah. day. Yeah. Um, and this is happening to people in, in all 50 states. You know, we've been trying to quantify that economic impact over at Dig Deep, which is something we can talk more about. But you know, understanding that, I think, in terms of someone's real life situation, it's, yeah, it, it becomes really dire really quickly. Oh, man. Well, I love, I yes, I would love for you to kind of unpack that a little bit, is that the, that economic impact and how this is directly connected to that. And, you know, I almost just sit here and I shake my head at some of the priorities sometimes, and I'm not going to go down that tangent. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. But like, I just think about like the priority sometimes of, of people in government and when they're fighting about issues that uh, are not the actual like life and death of people. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. Anyway, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. I'm not going to do it, George. Um, But, uh, but truly I, 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 I'd be curious about that economic impact that is directly related to this. I tell you, one of the reasons we wanted to get deeper into this economic impact was so we could get politicians to kind of wake up and pay attention. There still isn't a champion in federal government for this issue. You know, one, a president, a member of Congress who's really stood up and been like, I'm going to build a coalition to solve this, um, which is crazy because every politician has some of these constituents in their backyard. Right. I mean, some states have more than others, but this is this is everywhere in the country. You probably have someone that lives within driving distance of your house yeah. who is facing this reality every day. So um, one of the one of the ways we try to motivate people to get involved in this is we do research and we publish data. And we did the first national study on this in 2019 called Closing the Water Gap. And it was the one that showed us that like 2.2 million people at least are affected. And, and race is the strongest indicator. Like indigenous folks are 19 times more likely than white folks not to have running water. Black and Latino folks are twice as likely. And, and it's happening everywhere. But when we did that study, we couldn't quantify, even though we were hearing stories like Brenda's, we couldn't quantify what that economic impact was. So we just published a new report um, this summer called Draining about the economic impact of America's hidden water crisis. We love a, we love a spicy title. I do. It is Over very spicy. <clears throat> it's very spicy, George. Yeah. I like it. Spicy for water. That's actually that's actually <laughs> what my little godson used to call sparkling water, spicy water. <gasps> my kids um, call sparkling water, spicy water. Yeah, be, if I'm drinking so something, they'll be like, mom, is it spicy? <laughs> spicy water. <laughs> I love it. Okay. So spicy water report, which is called draining, yeah. um, is about this economic impact. And I think the craziest thing it found was that every year that a household goes without running water or a flush toilet, that household is losing the economy $16,000 wow. every year. And in order to figure out that number, we had to figure out, okay, what's, what's happening when someone doesn't have access to water? Well, they're more likely to get sick. You know, the the water gap causes 200,000, more than 200,000 preventable um, instances of waterborne disease every year. It causes 36,000 cases of type 2 diabetes because people have easier access to soda than they do to water at home. Mm. It's causing 71,000 new cases of mental health issues every year. People who are experiencing anxiety and depression because they can't live their lives. They're just in this constant, you know, sort of fight or flight around how much water they can get. It's causing 600 people to die uh, prematurely, unnecessarily every year, at least. It's causing us hundreds of millions of work hours, work hours that people could be spending earning a living for their family, like Brenda's husband. It's causing yeah. hundreds of millions of education hours, which means people are less likely to graduate high school and go on to college, and which means their kids are less likely to graduate high school and go on to college. And it creates these intergenerational issues. I mean, this economic impact is so powerful at the local level that it rips ripples sort of all the way out to the national economy. And it's costing us as a country, a billion dollars in GDP growth every wow. year. So like our economy, you know, right now inflation's really high. We're all worried about a recession. And like, there's a whole billion dollars in economic growth. We're not getting just because we're letting people live this way. Wow. But, you know, in that report, we, we calculated the flip side of that. If we were to solve this problem, how much could we generate? 
And that's the really exciting number. It's it's for every dollar we invest in projects like Dig Deeps that help people get access to running water or a flush toilet, you get $5 back. Wow. Um, by helping people stay healthier and helping them go to school and helping them go to work and, and keeping Brenda's family out of economic ruin. Like you generate all of these economic resources, often in communities that have been struggling without resources for so yeah. long, sometimes in like the hardest hit places. So we've been socializing that report, you know, handing it out to everyone that'll take one. You can find it on our website. It's uh, digdeep.org slash draining. And we've been handing it to, you know, politicians, people in government and saying like, here's an issue, here's a priority. And not only can you help people's lives be better, literally save their lives by solving this problem, you can create a tremendous amount of wealth. And some politicians, that's what they need to hear. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, you're, um, hey, speak their language. I'm just saying yeah, you're exactly. not wrong. You're not wrong. Man, that is so good. And I, even as somebody who numbers tend to hurt my head, um, I was a creative writing major in college. Okay. I married a financial guy. <laughs> so like he, he handled the spreadsheets. Smart. Not, I should marry a financial guy. I'm too. just saying that like, a, that my, seems like a clutch idea. Yeah. So his, I mean, my husband's love language is spreadsheets. So, you know, I'm just... <laughs> Um, but what I will, I know, right. Um, but I will say is I'm fascinated by data and statistics and that kind of stuff. I, I think, and I think a lot of people connect with that because it will, it, it speaks to us in a very practical way. And it takes something that can be kind of, um, you know, is ethereal the word? I don't even know. Just kind of like this. I love the word ethereal. You know, it is ephemeral. I know. Yes. It's a very good word. Again, I was a creative writing major. Um, uh, (laughs) it almost sounds like a very Moira Rose word. It's like, oh yeah, stop it. Okay. (laughs) It does. Um, but you know, when you, it takes it away from being that kind of like big idea to general, to like, getting into the nuts and bolts, um, which really does. And and you're right. That's, that is how 99% of politicians uh, uh, work and they just, you know, they're going to be like, show me the money. Um, and that, uh, well, I hope it's not that high, but yeah. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I know. I don't that. know. <laughs> and honestly, like it's, yeah. it, that's not a bad way to be like, right. you know, if, if you're balancing a lot of priorities and you need to know what's going to create the most good for the most people. Yeah. And it's not enough just to say like everyone should have access to water because a thousand problems are coming to you at once and you just need a way to filter them or organize them. Yeah. You know, now we have ammo to say, okay, it's not just a nice thing. Like it actually, this should be a priority because it could make us all a lot of money and make the country happier and healthier. Yeah, man. So, and, and I'm fascinated too, by the way you were explaining. And, and as soon as you began to kind of unravel that thread, it, you're right. It made total sense. Is like the economic impact of somebody doesn't have access to clean water. So yeah, of course they're getting sick. That puts a bigger strain on the healthcare system. That puts a bigger strain oh, yeah. on you know uh, social safety nets. I mean that puts us. I mean it's just it blah, 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 it just ripples down to you know everything, every area. Then we just again we don't we don't think about it. I'm going to take a quick break from my chat with George to thank our partner of the show, and that is Mama Suds. You know how much I love Mama Suds. They have been a partner of the show for a long, long time, and I absolutely love everything that they stand for. I love that it is a mama-owned company. Michelle Smith has been on the show before. I love supporting a small business, and I love that every single product is made with non-toxic, safe ingredients, but they are made in a way that the products actually work. We use everything from their all-purpose household cleaner to their Castile soap to their toilet bombs. You name it. We love it. I could not be a bigger fan of Mama Suds and I want you to be a big fan too. So head on over to mamasuds.com. Use the promo code Molly and that will get you 15% off your order. That's mamasuds.com. Use the promo code Molly and that will get you 15% off your order. Now back to my chat with George McGraw. Okay, so as we're beginning to kind of wrap up this conversation, again, if there's somebody who, uh, you know, they do the challenge, but again, practically, they really want to get involved or figuring out, okay, how is this something that I can get involved with? How is this something I can advocate for? What What do you suggest? Well, I mean, since we're one of the only organizations working on this issue, we take really seriously our responsibility to kind of be a hub for information on this. So go to digdeep.org. I mean, donate if you can. I think this episode is going to come out on November 30th. I think today, November 30th, we have a matching campaign going on for the holidays. So for every dollar you give, it'll get matched and it'll go directly 100% of it to a field project. 
um, that'll bring someone access to water in one of the places we work, like Texas border communities or, you know, Hill Country in Appalachia or the Navajo Nation. And, you know, whether you give or not, share your email address with us and we will, there's so many things to explore on the website, you know, videos and, and reports and information and things you can share on social media. Absolutely link to our social media sites if that's your game. I'm an Instagram guy myself. Yeah, me same, same. Um, yeah, yeah, we're, you know, we both started a career 12 years ago. We're both millennials. Instagram is where we, that's like our, that's our safety, <laughs> that's our comfort zone. I, I do like a TikTok scroller once in a while, but like I get a little overwhelmed. Yeah, yeah. See, um, I'm in my late 30s and TikTok is just not my jam. But, you know, same, that's a that's same. a conversation for another day. <laughs> <laughs> but come to digdeep.org. Yes. Make a donation. I mean, you can afford to give something, I'm sure, even if it's just a dollar. And if you can't, or if it's not the right time for you, or if you need a little more convincing, leave us your email address. And we are constantly activating our community around this issue. We'll share information on what's going on. We will share opportunities to advocate for these communities with government, um, with federal agencies, within your own community. It's funny. I I mean, I started Dig Deep in my bedroom 12 years ago. And now there are almost 80 of us and we work in, you know, six or seven states. And the reason that that's possible is because, I don't know, 40, 50,000 people have come together and said like, oh, well, this shouldn't be this way. So we're going to use our social media or we're going to use our bank accounts or we're going to use our, you know, emails to solve this problem. And that's the community of like Americans helping Americans that's that's powering this work Mm -hmm. right now. And 50,000 sounds like a lot, but it's not enough. We need more help. Um, And so if you can join us and you're hearing this and you're motivated and you're interested and you've done that for Leaders Challenge, come on over. So good. George, this has been so, so good. I knew it. When Zoom got down, I was like, Zoom's not going to not going to knock us out. Okay, Zoom maybe would say not today, Satan. That's right. Not today, Satan. That is what I'm saying. (laughs) That is kind of like my life verse uh, right now (laughs) is just not today. Um, Okay, (laughs) so good. All right. Well, before we go, we have to get to the get to know you round because that's how we do on this show, George. So are you ready for the get to know you round? Oh, I am primed. <laughs> You're primed. I like it. You're like I am <laughs> ready. I've been I've been searing in a cast iron skillet. I don't know. Is that even I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure, but I'm enjoying it. <laughs> we're we're just you're rolling with me. It's fine. Again, mm-hmm. like I said, uh my synapses are not quite firing today. Okay. So question number one. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Question number one is what is something that has happened to you in the last year that was particularly memorable or particularly embarrassing? impactful. Mm. My best friend uh, decided to leave um, Los Angeles where we live and moved to New York. And mm. I don't know, I've, I've been really wrestling with this over the last few weeks. It happened kind of recently. And I'm mm. surprised by the huge impact it's having on me and the way it's sort of like opening me up emotionally and helping me look at the way I, I experience change and whether I think I'm a person who's good at change or bad at change. And um there's there's some happiness to it. There's some sadness and some bittersweetness to it. But it's been a real like eye opening exercise for me. So that's got to be it. Oh man, that's like I felt that on a deep level. Um, yeah, it's like my people. You yeah. know, but that's a that's a good lesson. So uh, we have a a, a good friend uh, couple in our church that is uh, they're moving to Austin, Texas in June, uh, and I yeah, am like I'm everybody else. I know. Oh, it's so annoying. I'm just like <laughs> we you have know this that like straight song. All my exes live in Texas. Yes, like they're all, they really do. Uh, they all laugh. Yeah, all they're of all our all of our friends like the last I don't know probably like six months have been like trying to figure out like what sort of campaign can we launch to like keep them here. I mean, I realize that like they have to go and they're Aww. building a house there and there's a job and all blah 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 blah. But like I'm already it's it's seven months away and I'm already like <laughs> like I don't know I what I'm gonna you. do. I just you know but that's a very real yeah even you know with yes technology and we can keep in touch but man it's hard. It is hard when your people in your place when something happens it is mm, man it does change you. That's that's well, that was a good answer. Um okay question number two is George, what is something that I would never guess about you? <laughs> I debated on this one. I think um, uh, you might guess that I am also an artist. I make neon art, you know, like neon signs. Oh, fun. Like bending bending glass tubes, pumping them full of gas, lighting them up, hanging them all over the place. Love um, yeah. I, uh, my job feels a little intellectual most times. So it's like really nice to get into my hands and into my body and like, and like make something and, and build something have that creative yeah. outlet. Okay. But my other answer to that question, <laughs> my other answer to that question was, you know, I, I am 
a gay man and most people assume that like I, I've just always been this way, but I didn't come out of the closet until I was 29. Oh wow. Um a real late bloomer. And so that's that's the fun fact about me that usually people are like, what? <laughs> How's that possible? <laughs> oh man, man, man. All right. Well, I love that. I love that. Um okay, question number three. <laughs> See, I'm telling you, George, my my synapses not going. Um, all right. Question number three is what was your favorite TV show to watch growing up? Oh my gosh. I was homeschooled and we didn't have TV. Oh man. We, um, so, okay. Well, I wouldn't I have guessed that about you. That was a good. Okay. Well, maybe that's a fun fact. Also a, a fun reference. fact. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I was, uh, I was homeschooled. We didn't have TV. We had like a, a, a limited number of video cassettes that we were allowed to watch. Sometimes I'd sneak to friends' houses and watch TV and I loved Gosh, like that, like afternoon lineup on like, I don't know if it was on Nickelodeon or something, but like Clarissa explains it all. Oh. Like Goof Troop and like all, yes. all those sort of. Yes. Yeah. I wasn't allowed to watch Power Rangers as a kid. And oh, I would violent. 100% be like, Mom, I'm going to go play at my neighbor Jose's house. And so I would go to Jose's house. And guess what we would do? Watch Power Rangers. <laughs> so- Amazing. I mean, kids will be kids. Yeah, yeah. But I just I laugh about that all the time. And my mom died when I was in high school. But like, I like to sometimes have conversations with her where I'll just be like, yeah, you totally knew I was watching Power Rangers at Jose's house, didn't you? Yeah, <laughs> uh, she did. Yeah, she and totally she, did. And she, she, and she did. Totally did. I'm a parent. And so now like there's things that like I see my kids do where I'm just like, yeah, I'm smart. I was a kid once, too. I know what you're doing, child. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Okay. Uh, if you had to eat the same meal for dinner every night for the rest of your life, calories don't count. What would it be? Oof. Okay. So same meal, like exactly the same food or, or like, like, is it a cuisine? Like a, like a cuisine. Yeah. Like j- general. I think Japanese. Oh, good answer. It seems very versatile. You know, it's it like is. good. It's good fish. It's good meat. They have like, they have like a pasta sort of option. Yeah. Every once in a while, you can go for a Benihana moment in your house. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, I love it. Japanese for me. I love some hibachi. I'm all about it. God, yeah, when they make that onion volcano, I something <laughs> in my inner child just like jumps up and down with joy. It is not a hibachi meal without the onion volcano, George. <laughs> you're, you're telling me. And and a sweet Japanese chef cutting off a piece of shrimp and tossing it into my mouth. Um, so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, where else are you going to get that kind of entertainment at dinner? I'm not sure. Truly nowhere else. Oh, my gosh. I love it. Okay. And then my last question, George, this has been so fun um is the question i ask all my guests and that is what does it mean to you to run a business with purpose i think it's about doing something that really aligns with your personal values and that takes some time to figure out you know none of us are born with like an innate sense of what our values are they they grow and you need a practice to help you uncover them listen they're going to uncover themselves no matter what through trials and suffering and and if you can augment that with a process like meditation and journaling and introspection, discover what those things are, and then align your work life around them. I mean, one of my personal values is play. Mm. And um, it's not something traditionally people think of like as a value, maybe they think like integrity or trustworthiness. But one of my big ones is play and my job every day feels like play. And the days that it doesn't feel like play, I know that something's off, something's misaligned. And you know, those days are okay to have every once in a while. Um, But I know that about myself and and that keeps me in a place where I am extremely happy and fulfilled. Man, I could do a whole podcast conversation just on that because I also have really strong opinions about this idea of play. And um, in fact, I just I was like a couple months ago, I listened to a friend's uh, sermon on developing a theology of play. And I loved it so much. I loved it so much. And it has ever since then. He's so playful. That's what I'm just saying. That's what I'm just saying. I have Yeah, I have lots of feelings about it. Maybe I should just have you back on another time later. And we can just talk about play. Um, Because I also, you know, I've had this like very I don't know. Again, I think it's just from being a parent and like watching my kids grow up and I just see like their imagination and their way that everything is play and everything is the way that kids learn through play. And, um, you know, my nine year old will go outside and she will, you know, I'll be like, you have to uh, play outside for a little bit because she'll get, you know, and I'll just be like, go play outside. And it's in those moments where she'll discover making like, quote unquote, like a house. And it's really just out of like sticks and random trash and debris that she's found or like old broken chairs. And 
and I just look at the creativity where like I could look at that and see uh, this is a pile of junk, but she sees, oh, here's the living room and here's the front porch and here's all these things. And I, and I remember just kind of looking her at her and watching her and I went, at what age do we lose that? At what happens in our brains and our Some own people lives? never do. Yeah. You've met those people. You're like, whoa, what's it like to be inside that? Yeah, yeah. Actually, my friend that's moving away is one of those. And I yeah. think that's why he's such a gem. It's like he is one of those like childlike beings. Oh, it's so, just so incredible to be around. And when you find one of those, whoever's listening to this, hold on to him. Yeah, that's my dad. My dad is 78. And I've asked him because he he's always my whole life. He's used the phrase um, <clears throat> growing old is mandatory. Growing up is optional. And uh, <laughs> his my whole life. He's been like that. And, you know, I've I remember having a conversation with him over the summer and he had just turned 78. And I said, Dad, like, do you feel 78? And he was like, I mean, yeah, like my body, I feel 78. And he's like, but mentally, I think he said he's like he said he feels 22 mentally. He's just like, I just kind of just have always been like in my brain, like 22. <laughs> I mean, I was like, that's really interesting. Yeah. And I mean, I'm I'm 37 and I don't feel 37 in a lot of ways. And I remember being like, you know, a teenager or, or in my early 20s. And I'd be like, wow, 37 is so old. And here I am, 37. I'm like, I'm not old. I'm young and hip and cool. Yeah. Anyway, man, George, this has been so good. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you for the work that you're doing. And uh, I can't wait to see you in our lifetime uh, eradicate this issue. Amen. It's been such a pleasure, Molly. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. George is just a phenomenal human being. And I hope that you were inspired by this episode. And I hope that you get involved in supporting the work that Dig Deep is doing. I would love to know what you loved about this episode, or if there was something that you learned, please let us know on social media. You can find me at Still Being Molly or at Business with Purpose Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure you click that subscribe or follow button so you never miss a new episode of the show. And we are just about a month away from relaunching this podcast or rebranding this podcast, however you want to say. (laughs) We have uh, an episode coming at the end of December that will go into the details of it all. And the new show will launch in the new year. I'm so excited about it. This has just been something that I've really been praying about and thinking about for a long time. And so to know that we are just a few weeks away just makes me excited and giddy. And I think you are going to be excited and giddy too. As always, thank you to the team at Third Wheel Media for producing this show. Now for you, go do something good with purpose on purpose. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.